0: So, if you provide the questions, I'll do my best to provide the answers. Yes? I think we're blessed
1: with having some new folks with us today. So, could you perhaps talk about
0: the equanimity meditation that we did, and the origins of it? Sure. Well, it's, it's what's usually referred to as a loving kindness meditation. But as you can see, what we're really doing is uh, rediscovering compassion, developing our capacity for compassion. The feelings that you are asked to raise, they serve you very well. It's amazing how people, how easily people forget what it's like to be at ease and to be at peace. So it's good to remind yourself. This particular practice, we recommend to include it as a part of your regular practice with whatever frequency seems appropriate to you. And one thing about, if you notice the order that I went through this, first, you bring the feelings up, which you can do even if you don't like yourself. You can bring the feelings up, and you have to do that. That's the first step. And then you start with somebody that's dear to you and close. And you practice sending these feelings and the wish for these feelings and the wish for these happiness to people, to the easiest ones, and then the not quite so easy, and then the most difficult ones. You save the most difficult one of all for that. (laughs) because it's it's so common for all of us in spite of all of our self-cherishing even while we're self-cherishing as a matter of fact even at the root of much of our self-cherishing is the sense that somehow there's something wrong with me I'm flawed I don't deserve and a lot of our self-cherishing is just in compensation for that. Just because deep down in our heart we feel like we're not such a good person and we don't deserve happiness and all this sort of thing. And so uh, you save yourself for less in this process. But this, this, this is a very powerful practice. It changes the way your mind works. She
1: has to
0: the origins. What's that? The origins? uh, Well, the precise origins of the practice, the way I do it, uh, I know who it came from, but I don't know its longer history. It came from Nupasaka Kemananda, which was my first Buddhist teacher. And it is a variation on a classical Theravadan uh, loving-kindness meditation. Uh, There's several versions of loving-kindness meditation. Some of them simply involve chanting words. But the most powerful ones involve evoking feelings. And that's what this one is. You're you're evoking feelings, you're making it real. And there's a minimal amount of of word-chanting. So if you were to... If you were to collect different Theravada loving-kindness meditations, you'd find quite a variety. Everything from chanting the metta sutta to uh, recitation of wishes for the well-being of beings in the north and the south and the east and the west and the northeast and the southwest and so on and so forth and up and down and this down and that Uh Right through to those that uh, like this one that involve learning to activate the parts of your brain that are responsible for compassion, love, sympathetic joy. And you you mentioned equanimity. Um, Equanimity is a long-term outcome of this practice. um, But when you practice sending those same wishes that you sent to somebody you love, your worst enemy this moves you a long way in the direction of equanimity and admittedly it may be hard to do it first and that's alright, absolutely do not blame yourself but if you keep doing it you'll find it easier and easier to do and that's what's important it's not important how difficult it is at first it's only important that it becomes easier (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
1: um, yesterday you mentioned that peripheral awareness um, if, if you don't have per- peripheral awareness um, up to, I think maybe you said stage 6 it can really be lethal and, and so um, Karen and I have been talking about peripheral awareness and I think we need some more clarification on it Um, Maybe if you just talked about it a little bit and then we'd see if our
0: our questions are answered. Yes, I'll review that. She asked me to talk about peripheral awareness a little more. And I know this is probably an aspect of practice that is uh, not too familiar to most of you. So, just to begin at the beginning. If you examine conscious awareness as it normally is, you'll find that, yes, there's a focus of attention, but there's also a peripheral awareness. The two come together in greater or lesser proportions normally, all the time. And there is, it's very easy to take up a meditation practice, especially when it's given a label like concentration or something like that, and And only concern yourself with the attention aspect, but not the peripheral awareness aspect. And doing so enormously amplifies the problems that you're going to encounter no matter what. No matter how skillfully uh, you, you practice, when you begin, you're going to encounter dullness and you're going to encounter distractions. To the degree that you are unaware of the importance of peripheral awareness as a normal part of conscious awareness, you're going to be that much more vulnerable to uh, dullness and distraction. When you become too closely focused on one thing, you lose peripheral awareness, you are very easily distracted and you can very easily slip into dullness. You slip into dullness because... Essentially, you've lost a lot of stimulation of the mind. Also, because in terms of the conscious activity of the mind, you're not sustaining peripheral awareness, the energy level of the mind is going down. It's going down rapidly. And as it loses energy, uh, then peripheral awareness suffers even more. The degree of peripheral awareness that was there when you began, diminishes. And it's like, you know, if you imagine you have a, uh, uh, a spotlight uh, you know, it's bright in the middle and, and it's also got a large penumbra that illuminates things. You know what happens when you turn, turn the current down to the light? It shrinks down and the center point, all you've got left is a little, not quite so bright center point. And the next thing you know, everything goes dark. And that's what you experience in meditation if you don't sustain peripheral awareness. Likewise, if you don't sustain peripheral awareness, you're more, beso- more vulnerable to distraction. Because if we look at the contents of peripheral awareness, we might, break, we might divide it up into the problematic contents and the beneficial contents. The problematic contents are things like sounds and other bodily sensations, thoughts, memories, things like that that can that serve as distraction. the beneficial component of peripheral awareness is that to some degree it involves being aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it and that's exactly what gets lost first when peripheral awareness begins to fade so when you forget what you're doing and why you're doing it you just it's so easy for any one of those distractions to come in and take you over So, of course, you would say, yeah, but I thought we were supposed to be coming single-pointed. Isn't that what this is all about? And there is a point where single-pointedness is appropriate. But if you practice in a way that is single-pointed or attempts to be single-pointed, before you have developed the other mental skills that are necessary, it's never going to work. You're going to fall asleep, or you're going to find yourself, you know, in Disneyland of the mind. So there's a place for single pointedness, but you have to work up to it. In terms of the stages of meditation, the very first place, the very first time that you want to attempt to achieve single pointedness, is in the sixth stage when you've already completely overcome. Subtle distraction and... Well, you completely overcome subtle dullness and you're in the process of overcoming subtle distraction. When overcoming subtle distraction equals becoming single-pointed. That happens in a sixth stage. To do that before only complicates the issue and makes it more difficult. The other thing with this issue of single-pointedness versus peripheral awareness is it's very easily it's very easy to get the idea that the point of the practice is single-pointed it is only a means to an end that's all and it's, it's only appropriate in a certain segment of the practice now somebody that's managed to get the single-pointedness and never got beyond may not know that. You know? And they may very well go and perpetuate the idea that, well, we do this practice so that we can become single-pointed. We don't. We, we do this practice so that we can achieve attentional stability and mindful awareness. And part of maximizing our attentional stability is to do some single-pointed practice. It's a tool along the way. And once you are capable of single-pointed practice, you are capable of the much more valuable things, in addition to single-pointed practice. Um, These include being able to follow anything that arises in your mind. And follow it in specific ways. Once you've gained this degree of skill, you can watch each sensation and each thought that arises in your mind. You can watch the mind's reaction to it, what the feeling tone is that comes with that. You can see whether or not it elicits some degree of desire or aversion. And you can see as it fades away. This is the benefit of gaining that degree of attentional stability. Um, you can once you have this degree of skill you can open your awareness up and you can allow anything to come and go and instead of having your attention coalesce around one thing or another at the expense of everything else you can stay completely open and see everything that's there that's the benefit single pointedness itself the one thing in itself that it is conducive to which is very valuable too but it's still something different is the meditative absorptions the jhanas or jhanas and you enter the first jhana by in a state of single pointed focus but except for very lightest jhanas uh... All subsequent, all, all subsequent levels of jhana, are attained by letting go of the meditation object. You're only single-pointed in the first jhana. So, you see, single-pointedness itself is this wonderful, useful tool. Don't get hung up on it. Don't try to get it too soon. And it's not what it's all about. It's a really useful training tool at the right stage in the process. And it helps you bring helps bring your mind to a state where it has a tremendous capability, a capability to to understand impermanence, the capability to understand emptiness. When your mind reaches this level of refinement, you will have experiences in meditation of impermanence. You'll have experiences of emptiness. You will find your mind you you will see exactly how your mind creates meaning out of flux. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where you want to go. Okay? So back to peripheral awareness. In the beginning, peripheral awareness is going to help to keep us from succumbing to dullness and distraction. And then by Deliberately intensifying our focus, the the detail in which we perceive a meditation object, while at the same time not losing peripheral awareness, will increase the power of our consciousness. Because the only way that you can focus really closely on something without losing peripheral awareness is if your mind becomes more powerful, if you become more fully conscious. I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, Abidami's Abhidhamma theory of moments of consciousness. But ordinarily we have an awful lot of potential moments of consciousness that are actually non-perceiving. When you try to focus very clearly on all the details of the breath while not losing peripheral awareness, the only way your mind can do that is to recruit a large proportion of those non-perceiving moments of consciousness and make them into actual moments of consciousness, actual perceiving moments. That's how your mind gets more powerful. So, we actually use the, the relationship between peripheral awareness and attention to make your mind more fully conscious. Then, as you go along, even from the very beginning, there is this aspect of peripheral awareness, which is an awareness of what's going on in the mind. In the beginning, it's pretty much that Most of your peripheral awareness is used in the way that's most functional on the street, in knowing what's going on around you. It's an extrospective peripheral awareness. It's peripheral awareness of sensations, of the body of the external world. Because that's what's most useful. But there's always this component of peripheral awareness that is monitoring the mind itself. And as you go along in the practice, you cultivate that selectively you refine that and while you're sitting in meditation you don't need to be you don't need to have peripheral awareness of body sensations and sounds and things like that so as you go along and refine your awareness you can give up those external objects and those same moments of consciousness can now be employed to become more fully aware of what's going on in your own mind The state and activity of your own mind. And so, this is where personal awareness becomes really important. Because I mentioned jhanas. The Buddha, his first two teachers taught him the jhanas. He mastered the jhanas. And he said, Nope, it's not what I'm looking for. Then, after doing five years of austerities, he rediscovered these jhanas, and he spent the rest of his life teaching people jhana practice as a means to enlightenment. So what, what this tells you right away is there's something different about the jhanas that the Buddha used when he sat under the Bodhi tree, and the jhanas that he learned from uh, Udhaka Ramaputra and Alara Kalama, his teachers. And he states in the sutras very explicitly what this difference is. It's what he calls mindfulness. Uh, and it's a particular kind of mindfulness, translated in English often as clear comprehension, sati sampajana. It's knowing what the mind is doing, why it's doing it, and whether or not it's appropriate. When you enter jhanas as a Buddhist vipassanā practice, jhanas are a vipassana practice they are a practice that leads to insight when you practice jhanas as a vipassana practice you enter the jhana with very powerful introspective awareness of the state and activity of your mind That's, that's how you do it that's how you follow the teaching of the Buddha the difference you can enter absorptions as just simply a single pointed absorption When the mind enters a state of absorption, a very powerful feeling of joy and happiness arises. As you refine the jhanas, it becomes more and more sublime. Uh, 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 It makes our ordinary joy and happiness seem like something really crude. As a matter of fact, your experience progressing through the jhanas is one of getting tired of and annoyed with that. And, 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 wishing for something that is more sublime and, and serene. So the jhanas have that to offer, whether you have introspective awareness or not. If you train the mind sufficiently, you can enter jhanas and you can have a good old blissful time. You can go right through to, to the 8th, uh, even the ninth jhana. Um, but for it to serve as a vehicle for awakening, you must add to your jhana practice the fact that you have introspective awareness of the state and activity of the mind. And this is a very special kind of peripheral awareness. And so, what I'm telling you is, peripheral awareness is there before you begin, and in this whole process, you're going to refine peripheral awareness, and you're going to use it <coughs> is going to become. It is going to become an important part of what eventually brings you to those insights that lead to awakening. That was probably more of an answer than you wanted. <laughs> no, no. More, more, and more. And more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kind of follow up. Last evening when I was meditating, I was getting. I think I was getting dull, and someone coughed behind me. I quickly jumped out of my skin. I think so. If I was more peripherally aware, I wouldn't have had that jolt response. That's absolutely true. Uh, subtle dullness. One of the clues to subtle dullness is the startled reaction. If you're in meditation and a, a door slams, a dog barks, car car horn honks, somebody coughs, and you go, <laughs> you are in dullness. <laughs> because, you know, and this is something that's actually been demonstrated in, uh, in the laboratory that people who are doing the kind of meditation that results in a very high energy level of mind very alert kind of awake, uh, they in the experiments they, they did you know, I hooked them up to EEGs and they used something that made such a loud, sharp n- uh, noise it was like a, a, a pistol shot or something, you know, it was really loud but the guys that could do this it had no effect. It just it was as if they knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So on the peripheral awareness, if you're in your meditation and you lose the peripheral awareness, um, do you take a moment off of your object and go and find it again? You...
0: Yes, if if you need to, definitely do that. It does you know, yes, that's absolutely if you realize, what you've done when that happened is you recognize recognized you're in a state of dullness. And uh, expanding your awareness and reestablishing peripheral awareness is going to help bring you out of the dullness. And then you can re- refocus on your meditation object. As you go along, it won't be so necessary to abandon the meditation object. You'll just reestablish peripheral awareness. Yes. Could you maybe talk a little bit about preliminaries to meditation? If um, you practice them. Yes. Uh, there's different kinds of preliminaries. One one kind of preliminary that I think is very useful, and I know you've probably been taught some specific system and preliminaries. So I'll just speak to you in general and you can see how it fits in with what you'd like One way of doing preliminaries, preparing yourself for meditation, is to remind yourself of why you're doing it. Be really clear on why I'm here today and day And the second thing is to be really clear on what you're going to do, especially if you have a variety of different practices. Decide in advance what you're going to do. Don't get 10 minutes into your meditation and decide, oh well, this is not working very well today. I think I'll do such and such instead. Decide in advance and stick with it. Then, if you have a map, which is what the 10 stages are, if you have a map, you have some idea of where you are in your journey. You have some idea of the problems that you're likely to encounter. of the skills that you're in the process of, of refining. So, first of all is be clear on what you expect to do in your meditation today and form a strong result that you're, you're going to do your absolute best. And then the next step is to let go of all expectations. Okay, based on what's gone before, this is what kind of meditation I think I'm going to have and I think I'm going to be working on this. But if it turns out totally different, that's too. I'm going to still do the best practice. I then it's good to examine your mind. Uh, what's going on in your mind? What are the things that are most likely to be distractions or, or pose a problem in one form or another? And acknowledge those. You know, confront them. Say, okay, this is probably going to come up. When it does, I'm going to let go of it. That helps a lot. You might, not, you might not think of everyone in advance, but all of the ones that you did think of are going to give you a lot of resolve that's going to help you when something that you didn't think of comes up. So this is part of a, a preparation for your practice. It's very powerful. And so once you've done that, and you make sure your posture is good, comfortable when you can go ahead and begin to meditate. Now that's one kind of preliminary. There's another kind of preliminary that you can do that is extremely valuable. Um, often, often people when they're just beginning to meditate are not interested in doing this, but it involves generating a proper state of mind. You should you should enter your meditation in a joyful state of mind. You should be doing this definitely for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of, of all beings, for all the people around you, uh, for including those people who think you should be paying attention to them right now instead of sitting here by yourself. And so, you know, you establish that in your mind and you enter your meditation as much as possible in a state of joy. And then, before you practice, this is an excellent time to review. Uh, If you you meditate once a day, you can review the previous 24 hours. In terms of how mindful you were, how well you kept your precepts, or vows, how well do you practice the perfections and call to mind specific instances, both where you did and where you didn't. And you call to mind instances where you could have been more mindful. You could have acted with more patience or more compassion. And that's good. You just reflect on it without judging. It's just the way you do. It's not about scolding yourself. It's just seeing. Because by seeing, you're planning a seed so that tomorrow if something similar happens, or next month if something similar happens, because of this review, you're more likely to be mindful. You're more likely to respond more appropriately to whatever situation has come. But also, you need to make sure that you call to mind all of your successes, all of the times when you were mindful, more mindful than you have in the past, where you practiced generosity, or patience, or one of the virtues, where you remembered what you're on about. Because reviewing and recollecting those is going to positively reinforce the same process. That too is going to make it far more likely that tomorrow or next week or next month when similar situations arise, you are mindful and you do what's appropriate. This process of reflection can and should be a part of your practice. If there are things that you've done in the last 24 hours that are sources of uh, uh, worry or remorse, then you need to examine those things. You need to are you familiar with the four powers? Practice the four powers. You're going to resolve, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'll do my best not to do this anymore. I might, but I'm going to do my best not to. Right? And if there's anything that you can do to make reparations for what you've done, then you make that commitment that after your meditation is over with, you're going to do that. you're going to to do your best to make things right so you need you need to become relatively free from the agitation of the mind that comes from worry and remorse I don't know if you're familiar with what's called the five hindrances but the fourth of the five hindrances is agitation due to worry and remorse what I just described is a very powerful way of dealing with that purifying your mind of it. And it's absolutely essential. You'll reach a certain stage in your meditation where it doesn't go any further until you've taken care of those things. So the sooner you start working on that, the more successful your meditation is going to be. The other thing that you can attend to as a part of a, a preliminary to your meditation is any sources of ill will that you're harboring. Because it's also the case that there's a certain stage in your meditation where, to the extent that you still have ill will, aversion, annoyance, aggravation in your heart and your mind, it is going to interfere with further progress. And so, if you make it as a regular part of your preliminaries to scan your mind for any evidence, you know, it may be that you have some ill will that you didn't know about because nothing's triggered it for the last two years but today something happened it was a phone call or whatever and it reminded you of it and you realize it's still there this is the time to acknowledge it and begin the process of purifying yourself because that's the second of the five hindrances uh, these kinds of negative thoughts and attitudes and I mentioned the five hindrances by the way, do you know the five hindrances? No, no, sort of. Okay. okay. okay, yes. okay. Yeah, yeah. The five hindrances are worldly desire and ill-will, aversion, negativity of any kind. It's usually, the short form is ill-will, but it includes every sort of negativity. And that's what I was just talking about. Okay. Then the third is, uh, I call it resistant procrastination, resistant... Uh, Sometimes it's called sloth and torpor. Those are Christian words. Sometimes it's called laziness, things like that. But at its root, it is a resistance uh, to practicing or a resistance to some aspect of the practice. And so that's the third hindrance. The fourth is the agitation due to worry and remorse, which I mentioned. This comes from things that you've done. You're either worried about the consequences or you regret the consequences. And in either case, you haven't done anything about it. And it doesn't matter whether you are consciously aware of it or not. You know, if, if you've been fiddling with your income taxes for the last five years, you may not have thought of it since last April, but that doesn't mean it's not affecting your mind today. It is. And that, that would be an example of, uh, of, of worry, right, if they catch me. So, the fourth hindrance is the agitation of the mind due to worry and remorse. The fifth hindrance is doubt. Skeptical doubt. Not healthy doubt, but skeptical doubt. Um, These five hindrances oppose five specific meditation factors. And so, you know, they line up with certain meditation factors. uh, the meditation factors are directed, sustained attention, joy, happiness, uh, and uh, single pointedness. Equanimity is, a, is another one. But the, these are opposed by these hindrances. Now, what opposes single pointedness is worldly desire. What, oppo- what opposes pleasure and happiness as a meditation factor. Not ordinary pleasure and happiness, but there is a stage in meditation where there is, it's called pacification of the senses, uh, physical pliancy, the body feels really good, a pleasant feeling. And then likewise, with mental pliancy, there is a feeling of happiness, a mental pleasure. So this pleasure, this mental and physical pleasure, which is a part of the meditation process, cannot arise if it is opposed by the hindrance of ill will. Instead of physical pleasure, it'll jerk and twitch and you'll feel like you've got hands crawling on your skin or you know, cold breezes or your hair will stand on you and all kinds of things like that. And that's... What's trying to arise is pleasure, but it can't because it's got it's being opposed by ill will. Um, the agitation due to worry and remorse opposes the uh, arising of joy, of meditative joy, and that is a very important part of the process. So, if you're carrying around those sources of agitation, whether you're conscious of them or not, you're going to get to that place in your meditation, and you're going to get stuck. So, as preliminaries, uh, the sooner you introduce a kind of preliminary that addresses these things, then the better prepared you're going to be when you get to those stages of meditation. But as I say, a lot of people... they I just came to learn to meditate. I don't need to do that other stuff. And that's fine. There will come a time when you're ready and your teacher should at least, they'll say to you, Well, I think you better start working on these things because you're getting into.
2: Like investigating whether it really meant what I was doing or the people I was saying it to because it's the community and the happiness and the longing for no suffering. And just um, like how many years, how many eons? Let me talk about that. I wanted
0: that. to
2: succeed, but I have to, I mean, I'm putting out a can of worms so I'm No, that, no, I'm no. That, this
0: is a good thing, you agree. I'll tell you about my own experience. I was taught preliminaries as has a formula. I'm one of these people who talked about that, and I didn't see any point in this. I tried it, it was boring, it was tedious, it seemed stupid, it seemed useless. It was a formula. I sit there and recite this formulaic thing, and this yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I didn't do it. And then I got to the stage of my meditation when I learned what it was really for. And I learned that it's not a formula. And it's too bad that it's taught that way. It has to come from the heart. It has to be sincere. It's a process of genuine, deep reflection, soul searching, if you will, and soul searching that leads to making changes in what's happening in your mind. The things that I talked about—they have to make changes. You know, you can't just verbally confess to yourself that oh, I did this and I did that. I did any good? You have to, deep in your heart, want to change. You want to change enough that if there's somebody that you can call, there's something you can do, if there's something you can return, if there's something that you're willing to do, then your preliminaries, totally different things. They're really powerful. And it's the same thing with the, uh, the, uh, uh, the practice you mentioned. The... Brahma Viharas is what they're called. You call them the Four Immeasurables, but very often, way too often, you will be taught those practices as a formula, as a boring, tedious recitation, and that's not really what it's about. So, if you get to the heart of what it is, you'll find it's both the preliminaries and uh, the practice of the immeasurables are something much, much more powerful, meaningful, actually much easier to do. I hope that helps. Yes? So is it,
1: is it much more powerful if you just stop beating yourself up?
0: Yeah, that actually, you know, that's almost the very first thing you should do, is stop beating yourself up. <laughs> yeah. Because um, the more you beat yourself up, the more you're reinforcing the sources of the problem. It's to change yourself or to change the world, either one. The first step is to accept the way it is. You have to accept the way it is before you are sufficiently empowered to really make changes. And so quit beating yourself up. If you do guru yoga, yeah. Not everyone does guru yoga.
1: Yes. So, what are your feelings about guru yoga? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a
0: a good question. <laughs> a <boring> issue. <laughs> I've never practiced it and I've never missed it. I've seen other people practicing it and in my opinion it's problematic. I don't think Westerners understand Guru Yoga the same way that Indians and Tibetans do I suspect most of you in this room are practicing Guru Yoga. May it serve you well. Yes?
2: I think that Westerners probably can practice Guru Yoga. They just have to replace whatever it is
1: that they're using right now. What they should. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There are... Yeah, I, I think, you know, we really do come from very different cultures. And that's, that's where the problem is. So to, to practice a kind of yoga that is based on a very different cultural attitude, you know, to do that effectively, there needs to be... A, it needs, it needs to be kind of a fundamental shift in the way you look at things. You know, I uh, talking the other day to somebody, uh, somebody yesterday, I guess. That a Tibetan rampochet describes how he and other students in the Tibetan monastery used to play tricks on their guru. By doing things like tying their shoelaces together. Until an American can understand that, you're going to be impaired in your ability to practice Guru Yoga. Um. <laughs> can you that a
1: little
2: further?
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm getting out of my field here. Yeah. You know, I'm a specialist. As I say, I've never practiced Guru Yoga.
1: to take it further um to, do you you know and you, my observation was that it's a more flexible relationship than we might think
0: exactly okay. much more flexible mm-hmm. and much more realistic i think the tendency of north americans is to see guru yoga in much more unrealistic terms than it's intended I'll talk about something that's completely different, but it may give you an idea of these kinds of cultural differences. In Burma, people tend to be really relaxed. I don't know, it's a hot country, I guess. Whatever the reason. The culture there is one that nobody does more than they have to. You just simply don't exert yourself more than you absolutely have to. And it's universal. It's the attitude. Only a fool would exert themselves more than they have to. You assess the situation and you do what you've got to do. And enough's enough. So, in a Burmese monastery... The teachers are always admonishing the monks and the lay people that come to practice to work harder and to try harder and to be more diligent. But then, in the 60s and 70s, they had a bunch of Americans that went to Burma and they went to these monasteries. <laughs> and they would say, work harder and try harder and strive more diligently. And these people started having nervous breakdowns. <laughs> because in our culture it's different they were they were already willing to probably work harder than most of the Burmese monks and so they didn't need somebody to, so it's those kinds of differences so it's a completely different thing but it illustrates cultural differences attitudinal differences that sometimes you know taking something from another culture it doesn't fit quite the way we would hope that it would. What do you think? Is it different than Guru Yoga?
3: Well, you you could be taught in a way that's instructional but isn't necessarily Guru Yoga. Mm -hmm. Does
0: that make sense? If you wanted to learn calligraphy, you'd probably look for a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of teacher would you look for? Skilled calligraphy. What's that? Yes, yeah, somebody who is skilled in calligraphy. And if there happens to be four calligraphy teachers in your account, what criteria would you use to decide which one that you would follow as a teacher? You'd look at their calligraphy, But they probably all look pretty good to you because you're not a calligrapher. So that might help, might rule out one of the four or something. I don't like this song. But what other things would you look for? Right. You'd probably go and talk to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk to them all, see how you felt. Um, what else? What if they had other students? Oh, you to check out their other mm-hmm. students, students. Talk to the other students. And maybe look, at, look at their students' calligraphy. <laughs> right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's probably more valuable than mm-hmm. how well you feel you get along. Look at the other students' calligraphy. Because that's going to give you a better idea of what you're going to get. So, you know, there's not a mystery in this. Apart from Guru Yoga, you want the best teacher you can find, you want somebody you can work with and feel comfortable, because no matter how good they are, if, if the two of you don't match up, you're not going to benefit. But you want a teacher that knows how to teach and they have to have something to teach, they have to be master of what it is they're teaching, but they also have the ability to, they have to have the ability to successfully transmit that to someone else. And so all of these things are factors. So just in terms of a teacher, those those are the kind of things that you want to look at. Same things through meditation, you know? Or Dharma.
1: About the breath as um, as your preferred meditation focus, because it's spontaneously arising, it's a spontaneously arising phenomenon. But so are my thoughts. So, or at least they seem so. Um, so why
0: the breath? Your thoughts are mental fabrications. In the beginning, your breath might be a mental fabrication too, but eventually it will cease being a metal fabrication and you'll you'll be dealing with you'll be dealing with uh, present moment reality in its natural form that's one reason another reason is that the whole purpose of a meditation object it's just a tool It's just something to anchor your attention on, and so the qualities that it has that will make it most suitable for that. That's how you should evaluate potential meditation object. You can do meditation on your thoughts. That is a kind of meditation. Um, But realistically, it's not the the easiest meditation object, and as a matter for many people. Until they develop considerable skill, they just, you know, they just, all they would do is get lost in their thoughts.
1: For some of us who've been studying in this lineage, mm-hmm. a spontaneously arising is an image of our guru, Karen was mm-hmm. talking about. And so, and I, I can't tell for myself in the last couple of days if I've been struggling against the breath because... I think I mentioned to you the breath gets a bad rap in our lineage a little bit as a meditation object, or you know, but but also the the image of the guru does does get heightened for us, and and so I can't tell if my struggling against the breath is just a mental affliction or or if it's you know if if there's a if it's a deeply rooted uh, issue of faith. <coughs>
0: it's most likely just a habit of mind. You're used to one thing and switching to something different, especially if you've been told things. Uh, As you say, it gets a bad rap. Um, My sense is it probably gets a bad rap because most of the time it hasn't actually been the sensations of the breath they're talking about. It's been some kind of visualization of the breath. Well, if you're gonna visualize something, yeah, you're better off visualizing a sacred image than you are visualizing the breath. I agree with that totally. But then that's not a fair comparison. The sensations of the breath are something completely different than a visualization of the breath. And the benefits and attributes they offer are different. Um, I think mostly what you're experiencing is a combination of being used to visualization of, of an object, and some hesitation and worry because you've been told things. Now comparing these two, if you're just beginning to meditate you're going to... It, there is a real advantage to using the grip. You're going to you have one whole thing that you don't need to master at this early stage, which is the generating of the visualization. You can get right to the nitty gritty of cultivating mindful awareness and intentional stability. That's the advantage. Once you have achieved a certain degree of that, if you wanted to switch to a visualization of an image, it's going to be a piece of cake because your mind, your mind's already been trained. So if you were just beginning, I would really recommend you use the breath. If you've already been visualizing an image for five years, and you can do so successfully, hey, no problem. Use a visualized image. You've already done all of that work. There are still some advantages of the breath sensations over a visualized image. When you get to the sixth and seventh stage, or the, the fifth and the sixth stages, particularly, there are techniques you can use with the breath that you just can't use with a visualized image. But there are other ways to master those stages. So, you know, ultimately, almost anything can serve as a medication object. But Some things have certain advantages and sometimes those advantages and disadvantages are on an entirely individual level. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, My first introduction to meditation was, you know, practicing Vipassana in a center, and, um, you know, and and then later coming to this tradition and lineage, and I'm listening to some of the questions that I, and it is interesting. Um, I'm not sure I really have a handle completely that I can express in a comprehensible way. But a couple things. One is, earlier when you said about guru yoga not working in the West, I was raised a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I studied here for some time, and then went back to you know, church services with family members. And between reading the gospel and listening to the priest give a homily, I'm like, oh my god, they're teaching karma and emptiness. <laughs> you know, and it was right there. And then I reflected more on, in particular, my my mother and my grandmother and their special devotion to the Blessed Mother and the saints. and, And reflecting further, what I realized is if I hadn't had the experience of being a student of the Vipassana, you know, tradition and learning how to, you know, cultivate stillness and try To master my mind a little bit, um, I may not have been able to get to the point where I could sit and do some of the meditations that I've been taught here. That, in some respects, are maybe more like prayer than meditation, certain kinds. Um, but, and, and not to suggest that I was ever an advanced student of Vipassana, but I think what I did need and I found here was a very explicit moral focus, or ethical focus. And so that the mind, my mind, that I need to focus on the breath. I, I still focus on the breath to quiet my mind and prepare myself for meditations that I do in this tradition. But having a virtuous object um, has, has served me well. Um, but the other piece about the Guru Yoga that I think does work for people in this part of the world. I didn't say it didn't work. I said it was problematic. I can see why it's problematic. I think it's problematic if people aren't studying with teachers able to transmit effectively or provide the opportunity to understand karma and emptiness, number one. Like, where's that teacher coming from? But just seeing how my mother, my grandmother, and, and others would use these spiritual... Guides, okay, to help them and and see how um, the availability, having you know, seeing that all that's available to you, to then you know bring that forth and and change the world that you see. Um. So, but I do think it is. It's tricky. It's like on the one hand you. It, Based on what I've received this weekend and what I've received for for years coming here, is that I really need to do a variety of meditation practices. Um, And and it's almost like the Vipassana is a technique. Um, and, And a lot of the other meditations that we do are more almost like prayer and exploration and analyzing.
0: Yeah, you do a lot of yeah, analytical work. <laughs> right. You are uh, not the first to notice the similarities between Catholicism and Tibetan Buddhism. It, it comes up actually quite frequently. And what's funny is it's often people who abandon the Catholic Church with a lot of frustration and disappointment and things like that, and now find that that. Uh, now realize that there's a lot of similarities there and a lot of value. It, it's interesting, a fallen away Catholic can often understand Catholicism better because they spent some time studying Tibetan Buddhism. So, but it's true, a lot of similarities. Yeah. Yeah? Could you say something about the concept of Satori in Zen, which was um I don't know the exact definition, but it's like a sudden awakening rather than a long process? Well, (laughs) first of all, I don't want to say too much about Zen because it's not something that I have a lot of expertise in. Um, But there is this, Gradual awakening versus sudden awakening debate that's gone on for a very long time. And when I've looked into it, it evaporates. Uh, and Zen Satori is an example. A Zen practitioner has a Satori and then they have a whole lot of work to do. <laughs> so, you know, quite honestly, what is the difference?
2: Yeah. What's helped me um, this weekend with connecting with the breath is, one, it, it, it brought a wholeness to the body and the mind. So if I'm visualizing or doing other kinds of meditation, I wasn't aware of how disconnected I was from my body mm-hmm. and from my breathing. And, of course, we start, you know, we start life with the first breath, and we end this lifetime with the last breath and so for me I can see how I personally need this basis and how that then can serve it's like if, if, if I'm disconnecting from the body whatever meditation I'm doing isn't really whole because it we are in we're we're one it's like we're body-mind we're not in our society in in the Christian tradition too there was a separation between the body and the mind. And I think that was a problem. So I really appreciate what you've offered here. So. And I, I appreciate the teacher within the like that opposite. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, just a, thank you very much indeed, for being here this weekend. Um, uh, I, I've, um, I practiced in the Zen tradition for a good number of years, and then in the Vipassana tradition for a small number of years, and now here, you know, so sort of covering the water. But just a just a comment on on the on the satori thing. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, satori is like turning on a light in a completely darkened room, and you see the amount of furniture that has to be moved around to make it function. Um, and, and there are satoriic events, if that's a word, that um, in Vipassana and also in this tradition, where if you get to a certain level, it's like, oh, that's what I have to do. I've been going down this different road. Yeah. So that I think the, the concept of satori is very, very useful in, in the three traditions that I've been involved in, just slightly differently applied. Yeah, that, you know, so often I find that, that things that seem to be different, when you examine them closely, they're not. Yeah. Which makes sense, if, to the degree that they're talking about truth. They've got to converge.